Hello, everyone. My name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast, a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energized starts here. Take a moment now with me to reset. conversation this week I'm talking to Dr Judith Grant. She speaks openly to me about how she suffered with very low self-esteem and was bullied for being overweight in her school years. She reset, changed her lifestyle, built her confidence which inspired her entire career path. Supporting individuals and organizations to maximize their well-being at work in companies like the Royal Mail and the construction company, Mace. Then, just three years ago, Judith's life was seriously impacted by long COVID. She openly shares with me a very detailed and emotional reality of her traumatic experiences, and indeed some side effects still remain today. But how during this time, she realized that her personal identity was perhaps far too tied up in work and balance was really needed. Today, Judith has reset once again by working on her own sense of self, learning to slow down, she can speed up, listening to her body, setting boundaries, building a support network and appreciating the small wins in everyday life. She can continue to support others and inspire us all. I think Dr. Judith really shows us that adversity can sometimes trigger real growth in us as human beings. If you like today's conversation, please tick the like and follow us and send it to your colleagues and friends. Thank you. Judith, it's lovely to see you. Uh, how are you today? I am very well today. Thank you. How are you? Good. I'm very well. I'm down in Cornwall again today. So that always makes me breathe and feel like I'm, I grew up down here. So it's, uh, you know, it's not, it's my happy place. Well, I'm in Nottingham and actually Nottingham is my happy place, which people might find unusual given no one ever really talks about Nottingham, but it is a fabulous city and the sun is shining today. Oh, well, that's that is lovely. Um, well, Dr. Judith Grant, it's so lovely to spend some time with you. And we're going to, I think this podcast today, it will be a reset as normal of probably two main halves, but, um, you know, lots of little mini resets on the way. I want to certainly cover some of the work that you've been doing, um, some of the big well-being programs you've been doing, but also how you got to this place. And then I'm going to talk very specifically about your experience through lockdown because you've had long COVID and in quite an extraordinary way that I think most people will, one, you know, find fascinating um, and are terribly hard for you. But also, I just think it's an unbelievable story that so many of us, we've we've kind of left COVID behind, um, but you're not one of those people, uh, unfortunately. So I think um, let's start with you. Uh 
when tell us a little bit about your kind of early career what you were doing and and how you even got to this place well I don't think anyone who I went to school with would have thought that I would be a health and well-being expert practitioner now I I was incredibly overweight and unfit as a child so I just was never I never felt full so I, um, by the time I was sort of 18, I weighed about 18, 19 stone. Um, so kind of, oh, I say 18, probably 16. And then at the age of 17, 18, I decided I needed to lose some weight. I went to a new school and I thought, you know what? I don't want to continue being bullied and I want some more confidence. I want to feel better about myself. And from there, I had, I'd went to uni to do, an economics degree actually a lie I went to uni to do a law degree but within two weeks I switched to economics uh, and um, I did a year and a half of it but by that point I had lost six stone and I'd gained so much confidence and just felt really good about myself and felt that actually I could help others to do what I had done and the economics as much as yeah yeah. can I interrupt you for a moment because I think it's so interesting what were your family like were they were they a big build did you no no that's that's quite big that's not I mean it's not obese obese but it's quite large what yeah they were they're kind of fit and healthy and Mm -hmm. I was fairly relatively active you know Mm -hmm. my mum cooked healthy dinners for us so it's like I'd never you know, people say, we blame your parents. Well, actually, I, I wouldn't. And it's a different time than it is now. So it's yeah. the 80s was perhaps had a different focus around nutrition and things in schools. So, yeah, it's a different time. I certainly wouldn't blame them because behind their back, I would like shovel biscuits in the cupboard. I mean, that's difficult to manage. When... Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's, it's so interesting, that's, isn't it? Because exactly. so often we do blame parents and actually... Yeah. It doesn't always yeah. have to be that. Or no. it doesn't have to be that you have an unhappy time. No, and I had I had a happy childhood, loving family, um, but I was just, and I think the bullying for being overweight mm. just made me unhappy and want to eat more to make myself feel better. Um, and I've always had, I guess, a, not so an addictive personality, but a kind of a... Um, like dogged determination, I think, is what... Mm you would call it and I suppose that has not is something that's not left me um but that that kind of obsession I suppose started off with eating and then it kind of turned to exercise and then um it's kind of gone to other fortunately healthy behaviors uh, just about since then but um yeah so there's it's kind of no blame there but um I and people try to help me to lose weight it's worth saying but I had to want to help myself and I had to and it it was just something in my mind that clicked and said yeah I need to I I need to do something about this and it was it was more about feeling better about myself and liking myself and having the confidence so not necessarily about the weight itself Um, Mm. and it was difficult in the 80s as well um, and, and kind of early 90s trying to find clothes that fit like now you've got this fantastic body positivity movement and most clothes shops or many kind of intelligent clothes shops mm. uh, range 
you know, cater for a range of sizes. But back then I was seriously limited as to what clothes I could find for my age group. So that was, yeah, it was difficult. And that, and that motivated me to, yeah, change the direction of what I wanted to do with my life because I thought, well, you know, I, I have come from a place of not being a sporty person at school and, um, Actually, I can offer a different angle, I guess, a different angle of support to people who want to make improvements and changes mm-hmm. themselves. And that's, yeah, that's why to my parents' horror, I said, I'm going to drop out and train as a personal trainer. So part of the deal was that I did do a degree. So I went back and I did a degree in sport and exercise science. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I am very fortunate that I had, you know, the parental support to be able to do that. Many people wouldn't have the option to to sort of chop and change but but actually having a year and a half of an economics degree and then the sport and exercise science and then the kind of academic studies I've done since then I think has really influenced me so the economics and the kind of business side is something that was my favorite subject at A level and it's something that's always stayed with me and certainly in my well-being practice now um, the economics is really important. Um, so, and, yeah. and before we kind of come on to that mm. next phase after that, I mean, I think there's a lot of people, you know, I talk to a lot of people, but there'll be a lot of people listening who um, maybe feel that weight is an issue, maybe feel that they just like to feel more comfortable in their body. So mm. like you say, I think we're much more aware of body positivity now, that we're all different sizes and shapes. But, you know, I certainly feel like, you know, and I'm I'm quite slight, I'm pretty, uh, uh, my exercise is good. But I always know when I feel insecure, because I put clothes on, I think they look terrible. And then I can put the same thing on three days later, where I clearly have not changed shape and go, oh, I should, fine. So what can we do? What do you do to help or did to help people be able to get into that place? And what's that fine line between, um, I I like to think about being fit rather than necessarily being light or heavy. Yeah. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, and I'd I'd agree with that. So for the years after losing weight, fitness was my priority. And I was actually, you know, recent illness withstanding I was incredibly muscular so my weight went down but it kind of went up a bit because I just like lifting heavy weights which seems to be unusual in or was unusual perhaps in uh, in females but it just for me feeling strong through exercise makes me or helps me feel strong psychologically so I feel like um, yeah I feel like it develops that that inner strength so with my clients um it's trying to reframe the focus on losing a couple of pounds or whatever to to make them feel better and actually thinking um you know will lifting weights will improving your um your your fitness levels will that improve your self-esteem so it's a focus on the positives rather than it's what you've got to gain as opposed to what you've got to lose, I think, is is the is the focus. And some of it, a lot of it is psychological. So I found work when I worked as a personal trainer, um, actually, I, I was kind of more coaching uh, than fitness coaching, as it were. So it's more psychological coaching and physical coaching um, to some extent. 
um, because people know generally what they need to do, but it's um, motivating themselves to do it. And that's really, yeah, I think what I excelled in, I mostly worked with people who had a lot of weight to lose or had fitness goals that they wanted to achieve. Yeah, yeah, and I can completely see that. And actually the the, the different um, PTs that I've worked with over the years, if I've had a goal for a one thing, you know, if it's been about getting healthy or well again, you know, actually the psychological piece is every bit as important as the exercises you do. I, I completely agree. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, so you're you're working in this area, you know, you're doing the kind of fitness, the psychology bit, a little motivational piece. Where do you go to next? Um, so I enjoyed being a personal trainer, but I I felt it was just one piece of the puzzle uh, and I wanted to broaden out focus on health and well-being. So it was just through, uh, I guess, a chance discussion with one of my personal training clients who one of her friends worked for a local council, local authority uh, who worked in health development and they were recruiting for a job. Um, working in community health and um, uh, I got the details I applied for the job and I became health activator embarrassing job title but there it is that's local authorities Um, and it was a job part funded by the council part funded by the NHS and I had goals around doing um, health promotion talks uh, things like that in workplaces schools community groups um, so we did things like weight loss programs for obese children, which obviously close to my heart. Um, I ran chair-based exercise classes for the elderly, which I loved. Oh yes, uh, and- I think this is fascinating. <laughs> I think everyone who's working from home, you know, again we get we get. I mean, we're not specialists in this, and I'm fascinated. And we're going to do something very specific on it as well another time, but. Talk to me about chair-based exercises because it feels like something that's increasingly important for all of us. Yeah, well, it's it's about, you know, for people who have more limited mobility, um, being able to, well, sit in a chair and do exercises. So we had had all sorts of um, balls. You can imagine um, the um, the banter that followed from uh, from that in some of the um, in some of the groups, but also like they're sort of big like football type things that they would do exercises with their arms or they practice functional exercises like being able to get in and out of a seat without using your hands and that is so important as you age so developing those those muscles uh, in your thighs and in fact it's important for any of us um being able to get in and out of a, uh, a you know a chair without using your hands um so it's mobility and functional exercise. And for many of us sat at desks all day working from home or well, even working from the office, um, you often find people's hip flexors will tighten up. They'll get sore lower backs. Um, their shoulders start to arch um, because they're just sitting in a posture that isn't optimum. So, you know, whether it's working with older people or people who are office workers, it's getting them to think about posture um, and to keep moving sort of during the day. So just doing little exercises um, just to strengthen and, and stretch. Um, so, yeah, it was really good fun. Um, mm. Obviously really important as well um, um, because, you know, I think to one one person said to me, you know, this has meant so much to me. I had a, this lady had a, um, a hysterectomy and she said in hospital she was able to lift herself 
um, on the bed and move herself about using her arms. So, and she didn't have that strength in her arms before. So it gave her the functional strength um, to help her cope with, you know, what life threw at her. And I think that's that's something to think about um, for all of us is, is sort of banking that functional strength to be able to cope with whatever comes at us, um, yeah. you know, whether it's illness, injury, whatever else. Yeah, I could completely agree. And we'll come on and talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, uh, and, th- and then you went on from there. So you then you went in a kind of even more corporate environment. Yeah. So I wasn't sure how to make the the change or make the move from um, uh, community health um, to corporate health. And I was developing an interest in the workplace over that time. So I did a health and safety qualification. Then I started a master's in workplace health and well-being. And it was doing that master's course, doing the first module. I was researching interventions around health and well-being. And I came across a company called the Global Corporate Challenge, uh, which are they are no more, but they were bought by by Virgin. But they um, sold this workplace walking program to global organisations. And I thought, well, that looks interesting. There's lots of data behind that. So I emailed them and said, you got any jobs? Um, And uh, well, yeah, I had an interview and I started working for them and I was with them for two and a half years. And that it was sales. But for me, I think that was a real transformative experience because to be a workplace health and wellbeing practitioner, you need to be a salesperson as well. You need to know how to sell wellbeing to your board, to employees, whoever else. So I, I traveled around the UK to all sorts of random places, meeting hundreds, maybe thousands of organizations, talking to them about their health and wellbeing plans and programs. And you know, whilst I was obviously trying to get them to sign up to the program, it was really great exposure to uh, understanding different organisations, different sectors, um, and their priorities around health and wellbeing, and and then I, I continued. I, I did my masters whilst working there, and then I got a um, scholarship to continue on to do a PhD uh, in occupational health psychology and management. And um, during that time, I had a phone call from a chap I'd met on the masters in workplace health and wellbeing saying there's this job going at Royal Mail, so the UK's postal service, 140,000 employees. Um, we, um, we're recruiting for it. You know, are you interested in applying? And I was like, uh, yes, obviously. Um, so uh, it was a pretty, it was the most stringent interview process I have ever been through, terrifying at times, but um, I got the job and became head of health and wellbeing at the Royal Mail. And then was there for three and a half years and then was director of health and wellbeing at MACE and now run my own workplace health consultancy. So we've kind of got up to the present day. <laughs> the present day. Just, just very quickly, because I know from Let's Reset the kind of programmes we do and they're, you know, they're a particular type of intervention as a, as a third party. Um, and we, we obviously interface a lot with kind of heads of wellbeing. And I think though those two businesses where you've got the Royal Mail, you've got Mace, where you've got a lot of people, where it's almost as much around risk and safety as it is around well-being, and you've got those very large workforces. Um, How do you prioritise that and how do you enable the board to go, okay, this is beyond our normal health and safety? 
Um, so it's about understanding what the organisational priorities are and the priorities of different leaders and then working out how um, a health and wellbeing programme, I guess, can, can fit around that. So in both organisations, um, I think perhaps for my health and safety um, qualifications I've done, I'm very focused on, you know, you've got to manage the health risks first. So you've got to, uh, I always say you manage health risks and create wellbeing opportunities. So you've got to get the basics right. Um, so um, one of the things we did, well, we did it in Royal Mail, but in MACE was kind of um, the programme where I managed to get it through how I, I, how I wanted it almost, uh, was putting in place a um, essentially a psychosocial risk assessment. So big stress and workplace wellbeing risk assessment in the organisation. So initially when I joined the organisation, it was a, I guess, a newly reinvented role. So I had predecessors who did fantastic work in the organisation, but as in many organisations, the, the role was at a lower grade and therefore, unfortunately, okay. the hierarchical nature of our organisations, mm. you struggle to get the respect and buy-in of senior leaders mm. if it's, you know, at a, a, you know, a low, lower grade level. So I was brought in at high grade and um, spent a bit of time with each of the board members to understand their, I guess, their understanding around well-being and their priorities and to work out how I could best sell a health and wellbeing program to them. So we worked with an external uh, organization called Robertson Cooper measuring uh, wellbeing. So they use um, scientific measures of wellbeing as, as lots of organizations do, but they were obviously the great company we worked with. And we put in place this risk assessment the first year, really good uptake basically to understand to baseline well-being in the organization so to understand what are the drivers of health and well-being so things like and in fact your your seven needs are you know the drivers of health and well-being so it was a, a variation on that uh, you know the, it's similar to the um eight, the health and safety executive in the UK and their management standards indicator tool so looking at you know people's security their autonomy control resources communications control but all the balance workload all of those good things we also looked at things like their health behaviors people's psychological well-being so their sense of purpose and positive emotions around work uh, we looked at engagement with work um, we looked at um, conversations around health and well-being and this i'll talk about in a minute is really important so does your line manager talk to you about health and we also asked as your line manager talk to you about safety and um, there, were, there, were, there were quite a few questions. I do enjoy the survey deck. So there were quite a few questions <laughs> in that first year. But we got so much great data um, out of it. And lots of people might say, well, you know, it's one off um, survey once a year. What value does it have? Well, actually, the value it had, it was a starting off point. Um, and I was able, I was very fortunate along with, the company who did Robert Cooper, who did the analysis for us, we had two hours with the group board um, once we got that data to present it back to them and the picture of the organisation. Um, and it was through presenting that information alongside measures of self-reported productivity and presenteeism in the organisation and absenteeism 
alongside those kind of performance measures and people's intention to leave the organisation, we're able to do sort of cost up the potential benefits of uh, investing in wellbeing in the organisation. And that is how I then got investment in the programme for the next four years. So that was 2017. And we got investment to, to do that survey year on year afterwards. And then, so the next year, uh, we, we so we didn't put in place action plans or anything like that of the first, first year. It was purely a sort of temperature check. Yeah. Um, although we did, because we were able to look at the data at a group level, we could also look departmentally and at teams, and yeah. we could see the different drivers in health and well-being at different team levels. And obviously that, for some of the, what we call the higher risk areas, we were able to work with them separately to see if the, you know what interventions might be needed to, to support them. Um, but the next year, we then added a question in, do you think anything has changed as a result of this survey? And quite a lot of people said no, um, which obviously it's kind of what I wanted to some extent. Obviously, I would love to lots of things to have changed, but it was really useful because it then meant we needed action plans. So after that year, we then put action plans in place for every part of the organisation and we put KPIs in place. And those KPIs then sat on the corporate balance scorecard of leaders. So they became part of the you know performance metrics that the organization was looking at and and that focus yeah continued um uh over the years and we collected some really good really useful data longitudinal data um and um yeah re and some interventions have come off it and and while you were there and i know you then and we'll come on to your big reset in a in a moment um the one or two things that you did that were really, really helpful? Because, you know, the construction is, a, and I know there's all parts to make some massive organisation. Um, but were there one or two interventions that you began to put in place that really made significant difference? Yeah, it was that question in 2017 on conversations for yeah. health. Does your line manager talk to you about health? Um, so I think it was under 20%. People said, because it was a, a scale of one to five. So I think people absolutely saying yes my manager absolutely talks to me about health it was you know it wasn't bad I'm sure many you know but it wasn't great and but it gave us that starting off point and from there um we um developed a training course for line managers around how to have conversations on health and well-being and over the next few years um or the next couple of years that has improved basically you know it's gone up significantly and I know obviously I've left the organization now but I know it's it's continued to improve so I think actually equipping line managers to know how to have that conversation was probably one of the most important things we did the other thing was a lot of the awareness raising and anti-stigma work we did around mental health in the organization so we did all sorts of um, things and I think getting senior leaders involved was really important so um for some of the you know world mental health day time to talk day which is a uk initiative um they we had senior leaders go out and do talks sort of lead talks in the organization themselves so not just having me and the well-being team out which i'm sure people enjoy uh, but actually having their leaders saying this is really important and sharing their own kind of personal experiences 
and again obviously very similar to the work that you do it's that shared yeah shared experience it kind of breaks down barriers and encourages people to want to be open and perhaps want to be better managers and, and yeah. supporters of people and what did you you know look I think again um a construction company is a really tough environment they are you know extraordinary people um Mesa's are I think a wonderful company but you know that you've got some hardcore very male dominated I know Mark's done a lot to bring some diversity into it as chief exec but um what did you do because not everyone one is going to be happy to talk about vulnerability not every leader is going to open up did you concentrate on the few that did and then go do you know what the others will come on side and and how did you stop the voices of the people that went, do you know what, this is a waste of time? Or do you know what, this is inappropriate for the workplace? What did you do about that? I mean, it's a different, yeah, a challenging question. I think by measuring well-being in the organisation and being able to, and it being part of KPIs and the focus for business areas, in some ways, I guess it's carrot and stick approach, isn't it? So there's a lot of debate as to whether KPIs should be used for well-being interventions. I think they're useful in an organization or in organizations that are very data focused and they can perhaps help focus the mind of individuals or, or leaders or managers that perhaps don't completely get it yet. Because there's always going to be parts of the business that are fantastic and get it. And they, they don't really need a well-being um, kind of plan because they're just doing it already. They're inherently creating a culture where people feel they can be themselves and step up and that psychological safety culture. But um, if you are a manager that doesn't get it or doesn't believe in it, if it's on your scorecard and your bonus is linked to it then it's a motivator and the hope is um that eventually they'll get it and they'll come along so um and their peers it's almost peer pressure as well because we had um you know if, if some senior leaders are doing really well it's a bit of a competition so yeah. i think getting that competitive element as well uh, and there was when we um, release the kind of departmental level um, data. Um, the you know, leaders saying, "Well, you know, I'm doing better at this. I'm doing better at that." But actually, that's brilliant because let's share the good practice. Let's share the case studies. So, event you're not going to get everyone. That's the simple that you know, yeah, yeah, no, of it. yeah. It's interesting. It's exactly, and it's interesting for us. I think you know, it, we see exactly the same thing. The power of how are you is our most popular workshop. Um, after our kind of five-step framework. And that's because having that conversation is so important. Creating a framework that people can follow is really helpful, giving people guidance and, and an environment to try it, which is really helpful. Um, but I think, you know, increasingly, the bit we've grappled with is those larger organisations. What do you do? How do you help create a programme, but at the same time, stop the noise from the people who just simply don't believe and you know as the more work we do like I know the more work you've done um and I think and which is why it's nice we can kind of all work together on it it's such a no-brainer Nana, in my mind 
but it's not for everyone. And I get that. And, you know, we're not saying to everyone, open up, talk about everything. But until they try, they just don't know. And it is, it's an anathema to a lot of people. So I do get that. I do get that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, not everyone has to open up. It's feeling confident to be who they want to be. Well, obviously within, um, as long as that's a good person in the organisation. Yeah, and I do agree, but I think in the same way that we have understood that the majority of people need a level of EQ to be mm. any form of leader and actually even techie people that are writing code in a basement, mm. they have a sense of IQ, EQ as well as IQ, mm. to be more effective. I think what we're seeing and the data is beginning to show is that those leaders that can open up, and I'm not saying give 100% of everything, don't give your darkest secrets, but you can empower other people to feel okay. And Absolutely. I think it is beholden on leaders now. You know, you've just got to do that and you have to find the way that's right for you in the same way that we all lead in different ways as well. Yeah, and that's just good leadership, isn't it? That's or should be. <laughs> I think so. Right, so we get to um, a, a big reset for you. Judith, which is we get to the beginning of COVID. Um, I don't know what date, but when did you get COVID and what and did you know immediately? Uh no, so I the 8th of March 2020 is it's the, the date. after my birthday. Oh well, yeah, it, not a happy, not a happy coincidence or birthday for me. Oops. I mean, and I'm coming up, it won't be long till my three-year mm. COVID anniversary, as people call it. Um so I believe I caught it when I, well, I was out and about a lot the week, the, that first week of March. So I don't know exactly where um, I caught it, probably at a conference. It was at a massive conference. So likely I, I got it there. So it meant that I um, was ill before the first lockdowns in the UK. Before, I mean, we'd obviously, you know, from January in terms of health planning, you know, being aware that there's issues in Hong Kong, China, that, you know, in terms of COVID. So, but I just don't think anybody really predicted what was about to happen. So I, um, initially I felt really, really tired um, and I had a cough and it was headachey um, and had a really awful earache. Um, so I thought, oh, you know, I've, I've caught a bug. I thought, you know, part of you think, mm, could it be COVID? But I thought it's highly unlikely. That's, you know, highly contagious or high, you know, disease. We didn't know anything about it. No. So um, I phoned in sick and it was about after a week, I got uh, an online GP appointment and she said, yeah, it is, you know, we could be pretty sure that it is probably COVID. But unfortunately at that time, there was no COVID testing out in the community. So and and it was ramping up in terms of um, public health and the focus on obviously treating people who were needing intensive care, just that tsunami of illness that was hitting um, services globally. So for people like me who got it, you know, people say you get it mildly. I did not get it mildly. Uh, it was mild in the sense that I wasn't rushed to hospital, but it was not mild in the sense of the the illness I was very ill and I had to phone 111 so the the UK's my NHS phone line um, and I was unable I was really struggling to breathe one night I thought 
I'm not, I thought, I don't know if I'm going to make it through the night. I was wheezing and, mm. um, and they just said, just stay at home. And that was it. I was just like, oh, you know, left. So, you know, I unlocked my front door because I live on my own. I thought, well, at least people could access, they could get in and get me if I, mm. um, if I don't make it through the night. I, I did make it through the night, but I unfortunately had many um nights like that it was it was terrifying and it wasn't until um so about five it's about five weeks in I uh, well but after about two weeks I felt a bit better and then it went down again it was awful about five weeks I returned to work for like two days and then I was sweating and really ill I had awful raging tonsillitis still had the earache I had this croak in my voice um I was fatigued so was off work again but it wasn't till nine weeks in that I actually saw a healthcare professional but it that whole entire time I'd nine had weeks. yeah I'd had online GP so my GP was fantastic mm. but obviously you couldn't see the GP in person so were the, you not tempted to go to hospital or it told us, the message was stay at home the message was stay at home um so I did until at nine weeks, um, I, they were starting to, the, the GP was concerned that by this point, as I was still struggling um, to breathe, I still had this croaky voice that um, I, yeah, potentially there was, you know, I needed an x-ray on my lungs. So anyway, they sent me, um, I was sent to like a testing center. Uh, and funny enough, I tested negative at that stage. I mean, obviously nine weeks in, um, but they were concerned that my heart rate was being unusual. So just by standing up, my heart rate would elevate by 40, 30, 40 beats per minute. And I was noticing myself because I've always worn a fitness tracker. My resting heart rate mm. is 50, always been incredibly fit. But my heart rate was just going up and down and just doing it was, yeah, kind of really jumping up and down, which was quite unusual. So anyway, they sent me to A&E, did a load of tests and said I was fine and sent me home. And that became the story of the um, the first parts of the illness. And for many long COVID sufferers, I know will relate because they just couldn't find things wrong with us. So over the course of, I mean, it was you know two and a half year illness. But over the course of that next year, I saw a cardiologist. Um, so I had, my, I had a full like scan of my heart. Um, I had... I mean, I had tonsillitis that lasted about three or four months, and my tonsils been absolutely ravaged. Um, but they didn't want to take them out because the challenge of recovering from that while still ill was just, it's not worth it. Um, my thyroid has been eaten away, so but fortunately it's still working, but it's now on a watch list. So um, every year I just have to have the, the test because obviously you can manage that with medication. Um, but they they when they were doing scans of my throat, they could see it. Um, was damaged and but the worst thing for me I then became allergic to lots of foods um so I kept going into near anaphylactic um shock so I developed something called mast cell activation syndrome so basically the mast cells in my immune system just went haywire so they couldn't cope with certain types of foods or activities which meant or medications which became a problem because I I ended up in A&E I think nine, eight or nine times over the course of that. And they pumped me full of medication. And one, in fact, one instance, I was so ill with the tonsillitis 
that they gave me loads of medications, but I had to go back to A&E the next day because I had a reaction to the medications. So my heart rate was going 180 beats per minute at rest. Um, I thought I was going to die. In fact, I phoned my mum and dad to say goodbye because I thought, I thought that's So, I mean, that's just terrible. So you've got all that going on. How psychologically did you just cope with that? Were you still on your own for most of this time? Yeah, obviously, I mean, through, I think one of the lockdowns I managed to spend with my family, it's just they live quite a distance away from me. So that, you know, it was just circumstantial that, you know, I couldn't rush. In fact, the first lockdown, I couldn't rush off somewhere else because I was ill. I couldn't have driven there. So I I just, you know, stayed at home. Um, uh, It seems, yeah, almost dreamlike, actually. I, I guess I focused on on the small things and that's something I've always done to cope so I just little little wins and pacing myself was so important I didn't realize that maybe at first I was like oh you know a bit of act bit of activity that'll help me feel better so I might do like 10 minutes on the exercise bike just to get moving but actually that was probably whether I made it worse I don't know in the, in the first kind of couple of months who knows but um yeah, it was just those little wins. And, and and what was lovely, I felt closer actually to my friends and family than perhaps before because I'd get little gifts in the post or little postcards or little messages, not that, you know, just people thinking of me. And um, and I started recording videos for LinkedIn, actually sharing my experience. And that community I felt from LinkedIn was was lovely. So people kind of rooting for me and if I didn't post a video for a little while people would be sending me messages just to make sure I would probably be still alive but to make sure I was still yes, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was important I did have counselling through part of it because some of it was deeply traumatic like not being able to breathe and being left at home I, I don't know if you've seen the morning show uh, where it's on um uh Apple, you know, on iPlayer with Jennifer Aniston and um, Reese Witherspoon. But the final episode of series two has Jennifer, spoiler alert, Jennifer Aniston's character um, has COVID and she's struggling to breathe. Honestly, that was triggering. That was really, Uh, yeah. I I was like, oh my God, because because that is how I was for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, So that, that was traumatic. But actually what I struggled with most was my almost not loss of identity. I really missed work. And I realised that my identity was far too tied up in what I did and my achievements. And actually some of the kind of the work with counsellor was actually trying to work on, um, I suppose, my sense of self. And that, And that is probably one of the good things that's come out of it for me is... I knew I realized I needed to slow down and to appreciate smaller things. And I'm not to obsessively try and achieve things all the time, um, which is, I guess, I've always been quite driven and actually um, not being able to do a lot of stuff has made me a lot more appreciative of being able to do it now. So I absolutely love going for a walk and I have a complete sense of wonder when I can and don't get fatigued afterwards um and um yeah appreciating the small things 
has been, yeah, the, the, I suppose the biggest thing. And actually the support I had from people as well really helped me get through it. And I was very lucky that I found a fantastic consultant, a long, long COVID consultant mm-hmm. who helped navigate and he treated some of the symptoms and by treating me understanding what was wrong I was able to help myself through nutrition uh, and rest and pacing uh, and that helped my body to almost recover in the background I mean I've still got a couple of symptoms left and a few residual issues but um, you know I'm I'm pretty much fully you know I'm fully back at at work working for myself now I am pretty much fully functional I can't exercise like I used to but I can go for a walk and that's just amazing frankly (laughs) when do you feel um it's difficult isn't it because it it, it, hindsight's always a great thing isn't it Mm. but you know when we know you know the person who introduced us is Stephen Pycroft who is the chair of MACE I mean, he had COVID and was hospitalised and put into a coma. Um, And, you know, a month ago, climbed Kilimanjaro with his family. And, you know, in some ways, do you look at him and go, I mean, that was horrific. Equal, I mean, we were like, your friends would have been so worried about him. But he was almost, he, he went to the extra level beyond you, was put into this coma and then seems to have recovered do you think if you had been treated in hospital, they might have done something differently? Or and now you know more about it. Is it just it was just a very different experience of COVID? And there was really nothing, even if you'd had COVID maybe halfway through, apart from once we'd obviously got the vaccination, um, that what happened to you, like with many other people, would have just happened? Um, I think it's very difficult to say because the problem with long COVID it is so multi-system it impacts people in totally different ways. There are research, researchers looking at hormones and the impact. There's research looking at the impact of the different strains of COVID and how that's impacted um, people's responses. There's research looking at the aftermath of different types of vaccinations. So it is, a, it is multi-system and I think it impacts people in different ways. So whether I'd been to hospital or not, it, it, yeah, it is impossible to say. And I think that's, again, what's difficult for people with long COVID and perhaps for people supporting them to understand is not everyone's experience is going to be the same. So mine obviously was awful for two and a half years, but I feel lucky because there are people who caught COVID in that Jan, Feb, March of 2020 who have been, you know, they're in wheelchairs, they're... Um, completely unable to work because of of the fatigue and and the impact. Some of those people will have been in hospital, some of them not. Um, So, and and some of that perhaps is also related to ability to access support and care. So, you know, people's access, you know, I was very lucky that I um, had private healthcare and, um, uh, but not everyone has that. And although, you know, in the NHS, there's long COVID clinics, et cetera, et cetera. Not everyone has been able to get to them because perhaps the GPs simply haven't believed that, believed them. And all of those different factors just make it such a complex um, area. So I think if for people supporting someone with long COVID, the most important thing is 
really hearing, really listening to that individual and not kind of making almost judgments about, um, well, so-and-so had COVID, they did this, this and this, and this is how, so just because I took a load of antihistamines and sort of paced myself, you know, and time helped me recover, that might not be the same for everyone. So, um, yeah, really listening to to people and understanding their experience, I think, is so important. Yeah, I can see that absolutely. And and so you then had a sort of another reset, which was not to go back to Mason. I know you you you, you, you try to go back, and then you can then stop. And um, what made you then reset your life and work? I guess as a consultant now for the first time, is it purely around balancing? your health with your work or is there other things that you've learned through this experience of the last two years that's that's driven that for you so I have often wanted to work for myself and to to offer consultancy to organizations because yeah with my varied experience I feel I have a lot to offer but I never had the confidence and I was always sort of you know, let's wait, wait till I'm more stable, wait till I've got more experience, wait till I've got more qualifications. And I'm like, seriously, how many more do I need? Just do it. And I think that was the, um, it was the illness that I, you know, I, I did go back to MACE, but, you know, time had moved on. It was time to take, yeah, make some changes. And um, so, yeah, I, I, that's why I decided to sort of mm. set up and, and, and offer coaching to individuals and consultancy to organisations. So to really um, use my combined interests into the wellbeing data and my, I guess my experience of being off sick for an awful long time, because, you know, obviously I talked to lots of people about wellbeing data, but actually there's a human element. And I think maybe in, in through my career, perhaps I haven't always seen the individual as much as I should have done, because often you're talking about numbers. When you're looking in organisations at a high level, you are talking about numbers of people. It's almost, it can be slightly impersonal. So, I, you know, um, so I think having such a long illness, I really thought, you know, it's so stressful being off sick. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And I can see that. Uh, I'm so stressful. And I think for you, it's a very long time. And, you know, we've, I interviewed Kate a daily quite recently in a very different illness, was similarly off for three years. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a very long time, and particularly if you can't see the end of it. Um, And and I wonder for you, other kind of couple of learnings if there are people listening and you know I have several friends I meet people who have again different but maybe chronic illnesses or long-term illnesses that you know advice you've learned that might help them as well so the first one which probably anyone with a um a health condition will recognize is pacing so I think I have become very attuned to my body and in fact to the point my I get tinnitus so one of the remaining symptoms is tinnitus but it's only when I'm fatigued and it now only happens 
if I'm tired, it will just, it's like a chirping in my ear. So if that has happened, then Mm -hmm. I have already pushed it too far and I need to take a break. So it's listening to subtle changes in myself. I know that I need to balance it or walk slightly less far or switch the laptop off earlier or say to someone I'm supposed to be meeting with, I'm really sorry, but, um, you know, I just, can we talk tomorrow, whatever else. So, and I really, pacing my diary has been really important. So part of my return to work at MACE, but also now working with clients is I'm being really strict with my time because I know if I just let myself run free, I would accept any work anytime and that's that's not going to be good for my well-being and, um, and, and so two things around that and we'll come on to the other ones because there are two things that I see quite a lot is uh, and our psychologists talk a lot quite a lot about so the first one is boom and bust yeah so yep. pacing I get but so my personal um type of character is I'm a real boom or bust so I go okay I'm going to pace myself but then I always go into boom and bust how do you stop that um, well, it's an easy, difficult question, but it's finding that balance. So I know, for me, I know how awful I felt through the stages of the illness where I was in boom and bust. You know, when you physically feel you cannot get out of bed, you can't brush your hair, you can't clean your teeth, you know, to cook your own meal, it, it, it's difficult. So to be at the level of fatigue where just basic functioning is so so difficult that is my motivation and that is how I for rent boom and bust it's just that memory of how awful it is to not be able to function and to know it's not worth it um so yes I do push myself a little because you've got to know sometimes where the boundaries are and where the improvements might come because that's part of recovery but not pushing yourself to the extreme that you're not going to function the next day because it's not worth it. I mean, there may be something, some big event that you have to do. Um, so for example, I'm giving a lecture um, on Wednesday. It's a two-hour lecture at King's College. They're organisational psychiatry and psychology students. And I know the next day I have nothing in my diary because I know that is going to wipe me out as I wave my arms and chat for two hours um, because that is in front of a lot of people. That's exhausting and I've not done that for a while. So it's just, it's, it's planning. So I think preventing boom and bust is planning. And that if you've got like, I don't have kids to look after, but if you, you know, you've got kids or elderly parents, you could look after sometimes control. You don't always have the control. Um, and I don't know the answer to that, but no, no. And I was going to say my other one and you touched on it now is people. We talk a lot about boundaries and you've mm. talked about this uh, for you. How do you create those boundaries? Is there anything you specifically do? Obviously, planning is a really critical part of it. And then, you know, you touched on it. How do you push those boundaries to see, you know, what's actually just helping you develop a little bit more versus actually, you know, this really is a boundary and I, um, I'm going to stop that now? Because I think there are some things as we get older um, you know, and for also for all of us, if you have an illness at the same time, you've got a bit older and the stuff that we did when we were 20 that we don't do perhaps when we were 30, 40, 50. And I always I find that interesting. How do you try and account for that, too? So, I mean, most often it's in my my I'm going to say my fitness. So and that is a big indicator of my overall well-being. So it might be 
again, obsessed with data, but um, actually how's my heart rate been tracking through my walk? Um, uh, you know, can I push it a bit further? And I noticed over the course of weeks, months, my heart rate started to get lower as I was walking the same distance. So I thought, okay, well, I can try and go a bit faster or maybe walk a bit further. So for me, because I, I, rec- I understand the data in myself, that helps me with kind of work boundaries and with friends as well. I'm just honest and um here and probably far too, so I'm having gallbladder surgery in a couple of weeks and the amount of people I've told about my gallbladder which I've obviously now just told loads more people um, <laughs> I cannot wait it probably but, between eight and ten thousand people but that's fine don't fantastic, worry fantastic well um a lot of people on LinkedIn know about my gallbladder because I've been whinging about it but it's coming out in two weeks but it means that um I'm having to set a whole month of recovery because um I you know you'd say one to two weeks for someone you know for kind of generally but because of long covid and the illness i've had i don't know exactly how it i'm going to respond to it so anyone i've been talking to i'm just saying look um this is the situation as it is i'd love to work with you but this is what's going on for me and actually i think that being honest with people um it again it's it's that being you know feeling you can be yourself and and i think that breaks down barriers and builds nice relationships anyway so um yeah the one good thing about my gallbladder it's it's helped me connect with many people <laughs> it has and i and actually i do agree with you because you know we've we've been talking about what we can do together actually well since we first met and you were amazed before all this happened um <laughs> yeah. but all you know even just this podcast and and actually i think knowing uh, you know, I think this time over the years when I've been ill where I hide it and kind of use an excuse for something else. Actually, it's not very helpful. And and you don't always have to go into lots of detail. Yeah. But I think when you, you're on a you're on a very different journey. And I think actually it's very it's it's really helpful for people to understand one the journey, but actually the impact it really has. Um, and then we know that you know there's genuine reasons. And also then when we can come back and say, actually what can we do together? How can this work? What can we learn from each other? So, you know, I, I think I think that is really helpful. It's great learning in business. I see really good business leaders beginning to do this as well. I think as a health and well-being professional, if you can't talk about, I mean, you don't have to sort of lay out all your dirty laundry, but actually being, being able to talk about conditions that affect like so many people, it just normalises it, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, this month, uh, well, in, in February, and I think it's going to come out in just beginning of March, we've been talking about the anacronym of can do at Let's Research. So which is around connections, action, just being nice, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, kind of having um, observation. And I, and I wonder whether, you know, we've talked quite a lot about connection and action. You are a very nice person, but I think at the heart of well-being is that um, at the, 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 the moment of observation, you've mentioned this a couple of times, of just being able to stand back, be grateful, observe what's going on, um, try and reflect, live in the present you've talked about. Um, is there an area of that that's been really helpful for you to get through this that you find now is a kind of critical part of your own well-being and what you help other, others with? Yeah, I think, um, you know, let's talk about life or death, but 
I was worried I wasn't going to come through the illness at times through long COVID and and actually thinking um, over you know, for, 41 years, actually, am I happy with what I've achieved? Actually taking a moment to sit back and think if that was the end for me, actually, I've done all right. Like, I, you know, there are things that I do, you know, obviously there are things that we haven't done, but actually... Ultimately, I, f- I felt like that my career and everything that I'd done was okay and was good. And actually, I thought, well, why do I need to be running at 100 miles an hour all the time? Actually, can't I enjoy it a bit? And and that, I think, is, yeah, made me want to live in the moment more. And I, um, so, yeah, for anyone else, I think it's just stepping back and just reflect on your achievement and they don't you know achievements aren't necessarily career and um and academic and everything you know what you've done with your family or your friends or your charity all those things just actually reflecting and thinking oh no I've done a good job and um and yeah take it's been mindful isn't it and being in the present and that for me really <laughs> focusing on that has really helped like I meditate every day now so since the illness I never, I never did before. I thought, well, oh, she's going to meditate. Oh, no. But actually I do. I meditate every single day and it, uh, it just starts my day off right. I agree. So do I. Uh, Dr. Judith Grant, thank you. Oh, it's, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. But, um, you know, thank you for sharing so openly, actually, the journey you've been on, because I think reliving that sometimes must be hard. I know you do it a lot, but, um, you know, for us, it's been fascinating but also you know I feel so you're an amazing woman and it's really inspirational to hear your story um I I look forward to doing lots more with you but good luck in the next few weeks with your operation Um, and uh and we'll see you again no doubt very soon yeah look forward to it Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson, with me, Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist, Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network.